Welcome to this Pharmacy Magazine Learning Podcast on helping your patients get the best outcomes from topical pain relief. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and in a moment you're going to hear from Dr. Alistair Dixon, who is a GP and a health economist with a special interest in musculoskeletal pain, and Ade Williams, superintendent pharmacist at the award-winning Bedminster Pharmacy in Bristol, and an independent prescriber with a special interest in inflammatory disease. Musculoskeletal pain is one of the most frequent presentations in community pharmacy and can have a huge impact on sufferers' quality of life. In this podcast, you'll hear how pharmacy teams can optimise treatment outcomes for individual patients. We'll discuss the key symptoms of osteoarthritis and other types of musculoskeletal pain, red flags and when to refer to a GP or specialist. Our experts talk about the management of acute versus persistent pain and consider the latest clinical guidance in this area and why topical NSAIDs should be considered ahead of oral NSAIDs, opioids or COX-2 inhibitors. Finally, we'll discuss how to overcome the barriers to conduct effective consultations on joint and back pain. To kick off the podcast, I asked Adi about how he developed his interest in musculoskeletal pain in the first place. When I wanted to do my independent prescribing, I trotted off to a GP colleague next door to me. And I said to him, I said, oh, you know, I want to become an independent prescriber. And do you have any idea where you think my expertise would best serve our community? Uh, He didn't hesitate to to tell me that, well, you know, we need help with MSK. Now, the the challenge for me during this time was, unlike many other clinical specialties where they were very objective measures, pain is very subjective. So to further enhance, I would say, my uh, my state of swimming against the tide, we then decided to focus on pain in MSK. And I think one of the things that it really helped me to embed was, and which, which was a key strength, I think, for, for me as a pharmacist, but you know, very similar to all the community pharmacist colleagues, was the importance of the consultation, actually. And being able to understand the, you know, just like what uh, Lucy was sharing with us, and Alistair also mentioned right at the beginning of this, that emotional burden, the limitations, where the patient is at. And sometimes also being able to to present the evidence to them we, you know, managing their expectations and guiding them in terms of how do you manage this condition. And this is, and you will meet, you know, different spectrums of patients. Those that feel as if this is it, there's nothing left for them, they're going to become disabled, you know, this is all over now, life as it was. On the other hand, you'll meet patients who, who choose not to make any intervention, not to seek the relief. And you think there can be more that we can, you can, you know, you can get more out of your quality of life and, and really trying to work within that. So that's how I ended up uh, learning a lot more. I'm still learning. Still learning. Yes, aren't we all, Adi? Um, so let, let's pick up that in a, in a little bit more, more detail. Could you take us through your approach when you counsel a patient about musculoskeletal pain in the pharmacy. How are you making these consultations effective so that they're, they're improving outcomes? 
And, and I, I think the first thing to say is, and I think this is a responsibility for all of us in the pharm pharmacy profession, particularly community pharmacy, is that when the patient presents, they will typically present to, uh, not to the pharmacist, but to the member of the pharmacy team who happens to be the first point of contact. And I think there is a, a very important for us to really educate that uh, ourselves collectively about how do we make that first impression really count for the patient. You know, maybe, you know, thinking about the opportunities to offer the use of the consultation, to read some of the visual cues that are there, a patient with a walking stick, a patient who's struggling a bit, and also to you know, start to elicit in our conversations information about the history of the presenting complaint. Typically, a patient will come in and will say, I need a painkiller, you know, and it almost says, well, actually, how do we have that holistic mindset? And I think that's one of the things that I have learned. But I've also learned that actually sometimes when the patient says, oh, I've got uh, pain in my joints and either I always would say, would you like us to sit down and talk about this? Because there is usually quite a deep emotional unburdening that happens as part of this. But in the midst of that, you know, you must be guided to what's trying to get that history of it. You know, how long has the patient had this problem for? What are those presenting symptoms? Just like Alistair kind of showed us in the slides there. You know, is there any stiffness there? Is there any other inflammatory conditions that the patient has had in the past? Is there any history of any red flags, a cancer as well? Is there any other um, really concerning symptoms, a recent, uh, you know, physical uh, accident or, you know, any sort of incontinence and, and really any fevers as well? So trying to really look at what is this patient presenting with, knowing that for the majority of the patients that we will be dealing with, will present with joint pain. Osteoarthritis is going to be the most common one there. But really trying to make sure that it's a very holistic one. And in there as well, you know, you also have the opportunity to be able, to, from the information you have, not just to look at what is the most appropriate pharmacological intervention, but also to talk about the lifestyle interventions as well. You know, do you smoke? Are you drinking excessively? Um, you know, do you are you do you are you overweight? And even to reinforce some things that most many patients will have given up on, which is increasing the physic, you know, maintaining your physical activity, because the patient will normally say to you, "Oh, I, I try not to move around," but and then you're thinking, "Oh, but you're going to lose your muscle mass, you're going to lose your muscle strength." So actually, we want you to do that because that's important, and, and those are there. But but then after that, you're then looking at the evidence and really trying to guide the patient to the right. Uh, medicinal, um, you know, recommendation based on the on the evidence, and I think that is a key strength there because you know where the, where pharmacy has a unique offering is that trust and and the confidence that the population will have with us, and I think that's where we then say, okay, this is what the evidence will say, and most patients who come in will have ideas as well. They will offer you their suggestion. You know, uh, you know, I've been using uh, you know uh, opioid based medication for six months. Can't I carry on with that? And, you know, those are opportunities for us to say, no, that's not right. Or, oh, I, I prefer not to take the, um, you know, this particular medication because a friend of mine said, you know, it wasn't, you, you know, you can't just really walk with the patient because in that very emotional consultation that these consultations tend to be, you know, the patient is not just looking for something that's going to work, but something that's going to give them back their life or help them to maintain a quality of life. And, and you must buy into that. So you're not, you know, you're not going to give them something that's going to take everything away in three days' time. 
you are almost setting up a management plan with them. And I think that's important in both our language, our empathy, and our ownership of the evidence as well. Yes, thank you, Ade. Uh, very useful there, going over some of the key questions to ask in patient consultations and, and taking a an holistic approach. Um, let me come back to you, Alistair. With mechanical joint pain, you did touch on this in your presentation, how important is it to keep managing the pain and inflammation properly and, as Ade said, in keeping active? It's really important. Um, as Adi said, you've got to listen to the patient. And musculoskeletal medicine is all about quality of life. It's all about helping the patients achieve what they want. In a way, it's, a form, it's one of the best forms of customer-focused medicine because, yes, there is a disease, and, yes, sometimes surgery is where patients will end up. But the majority of times, it's about managing it, and it's about listening to the patient, adopting what they find important, and finding solutions that works for them. So if we look at mechanical pain, someone who is clinically overweight or clinically obese, for every extra pound of weight that you have carrying in your, on your body, you're putting four pounds of extra pressure through your knee. So that's phenomenal. So getting a bit of weight off isn't just us saying it. It actually will make a significant difference. But doing that is really difficult because often they're scared of the pain. And so it's about, therefore, working with them to say, well, how can we manage your pain to allow you to exercise more? And also explaining that as you get older, particularly once you're older, over 70, it's very, very easy to lose muscle mass and incredibly difficult to put it back on. And this is why even people who are going for a replacement joint, such as a total knee replacement or a total hip replacement, the evidence shows that actually doing lots and lots of exercise beforehand, so pre-operation pre physio, actually improves outcomes. And it's not just from a cardiac perspective, but actually it's from a functioning perspective because you've retained and even possibly built up some of the muscle mass. So, yeah, it, it, it is about listening to the patient and it's about, as Adi says, sitting down with your patient and saying, now, uh, um, how can I help? And it might not be your first time of seeing the patient that they are willing to accept that. It might be two or three visits or longer down the line but keeping that door open keeping talking the same as we've learned to do with smoking and telling people why it's beneficial to stop smoking um, is just as important with mechanical joint pain from not just a lifestyle perspective but from actually managing your pain better with evidence-based analgesia thanks alistair um Ade mentioned the, the importance of the pharmacy team and support staff in all of this. And we, we've got a, a couple of questions actually are coming in from uh, pharmacy team members. Um, this for, I'll, I'll put this one to, to you, Alistair. This is from Louise Smith from uh, Riverside Pharmacy. And she's asking, what things um, aggravate joint pain? So I suppose we've talked about the benefits of exercise, but what things actually make MSK pain worse? 
So back pain's a really good one to discuss this about because people have good days and they have bad days. And when you listen to them, on a bad day they do very little and on a good day they go absolutely like bats um, and going as fast as possible and trying to achieve everything that they haven't been able to do on their bad days. And the result, they often over-exercise and get more bad days as a result. So you sort of have this up and down cycle with a lot of bad days because you're not pacing yourself. So if you look at someone like Pete Moore's um, back pain website, who is a patient with uh, back pain, he talks about pacing and he talks about working out what your limits are. So he says, every so often you need to work out how much can you do before it's too much. Accepting that the next few days you'll be swearing gently because you'll be shattered. And then once you've worked out what is your maximum, halve it. So if we're saying that you can normally walk 100 meters as maximum, walk 50 meters and stop and have a rest. And then do another 50 meters and stop and have a rest. And you can do that almost adding finitum. So it's teaching people and applying that same principle with even exercises. And it's about attainable goals. So with patients, I often say, you know, what's, what have you thought about in terms of exercise? And so well, it's really difficult to do. Okay. What are the challenges? Well, this, this, and this. And my mechanical joint pain often means that they end up parking right at the front of the car park. So I often say, well, what about parking three or four rows further back? And slowly but surely working so that you are parking at the back end of the car park from the shop. That's a good way of getting someone to start doing more exercise. And they, they, they gain confidence. And the psychological impact of joint pain and musculoskeletal pain shouldn't ever be underestimated. And it doesn't just need antidepressants, it actually needs these sort of pacing discussions and other things like, okay, I've, I've got grandchildren. Okay, how old are your grandchildren? Oh, they're four, uh, they're three, they're seven. What do they want to do? Well, they really want to do X, Y, and Z. Well, we know that swimming might be beneficial for your back. Yeah, it's non-weight bearing exercises, same as cycling. Well, yes, they always do want to go swimming. Well, how often do you see them? Once a week. Well, why don't you put, do that with them? And they will encourage you, so they won't allow you to stop. And all these sorts of things make habits become part of the family habit rather than you being different. And if you can stop the patient being different and having to do an exercise or um, activities where they're always having to fight against what everyone else is doing in the family, but it becomes part of what is an attainable habit with, for the whole family, then these goals become much more attainable and you can start to build these lifestyle measures in. And at the same time, you can discuss about, well, before you go swimming or before you go walking, remember to take your topical. Remember to apply your, your topical NSA on your knee or, or on, your, on your hip or your back um, because you'll, you might need it when, you know, for the pain that uh, may generate um, when you relax afterwards because people stiffen up and it's talking about that and explaining that. I find that that often works very well. I don't know what Adi uh, finds. 
I, I think thank you very much, Alistair. I think very much what you've said is is so key. Uh, I I really like that whole focus on that understanding the emotional toil of this. And the other the other area that we really focus in on is that uh, I know as a, for the pharmacy team we know that for patients that do suffer from this pain it can be to really uh, you know really marked social isolation. Um, and the loss of any sort of agency to pursue the things that are normal to them and normal to most of us, and they lose that, and the loss of identity. And 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 one of the things really that um, they you know that we must try to do is almost to give that patient that sense of hope, actually, but hope around a you know a, pro, a journey, you know that there is a, a, a way to manage this. This, you know, you, you can have good days and bad days depending on where your pain is and which particular joints are affected. You can have strategies to cope. Um, also trying to sometimes create a very individual package of care with resources about exercises that they can, you know, that they, sh they should be looking at. And, and then, because when some, for many people, when this really lands on them, it, it will always land on, ex you know, even though it may be gradual, there is that sense of what I can, what I've lost. And you are almost then trying to say, well, some things you can still, you know, we may be able to regain some movement, some strength back. Some things you just need to, we have to accept that we need to modify what we do. And I think that's one of the key things of that access that we have where people can come in all the time. And that, you know, and that emotional sort of um, offering as well is key to that. And really just basing that on the evidence, actually, and, and really being quite clear because there are lots of, you know, of non-evidence-based resources and information out there. And in the in people's desperation, they can cleave on to those things. And I think it's important that we actually do say, you know, this is, you know, this is what the evidence is and, and let us know, you know, we, we are, you know, we are not casting you off and saying, well, try this, but let's know how you're doing and we will keep working with your package of care. And at the appropriate time, we may need to pass that on to uh, the general practitioner colleagues to help you to progress, and they may need to, but it's okay, you know, there is help. And I think that's something that I think is quite important, that emotional intelligence as well, and just that offer as well of the evidence-based uh, interventions that exist, such as the topical analgesic. Yeah, thanks both. Some uh, that's really great, that's very practical advice there. Um, an interesting comment has, has come in. I, I, I won't name the person. It's a pharmacy technician who is saying, yes, I, I have exactly those issues that, that you two mentioned. I, I feel better uh, and then I try to do so much and I don't listen to my body and then I, I, I suffer the next day. So um, backing up backing up what, what you say there. Um, just a final question to, to Alistair, I think. Um, let's go to you. Uh, this is from Anya Patel, who's asking, how do you distinguish between those conditions that need urgent referral, I just mentioned referral, um, with kind of common activity-related joint pain, summarising the question here. Uh, how do you distinguish between those and most conditions that can be married in a managed, rather, in a community pharmacy. So it's those red flags again, isn't it, Alice? Is there anything you'd like, like to say there to, to emphasise any points? It's tricky. And I've got it wrong. And I know pretty much every one of my colleagues will have got it wrong. And I will probably still miss them at times. So the first thing is, listen to your patient and go with your gut. 
I know that's not in a textbook, and you can't do a randomised controlled trial on that, but when I ignore sort of that warning alarm bell that goes on the back of my brain, I know that I'm going to be making a mistake. So one of the things I've learned is, hmm, am I really sure here? And if I'm not sure, I'll retake the history again. And if I'm still not sure, I'll ask for help. And GPs are always, always happy to ask for help. You, can, you can't go wrong by saying to someone, you know what, I'm not 100% sure. If you're looking at your really key red flags, um, which is, I suspect, your, the essence of your question, you know, which one should be going to A&E that I don't really want to miss? Well, even if you don't know what a hot septic joint is, if you've got someone who's got a fever and it's with joint pain and it's not sounding like a virus, but it's particularly focused on one or two joints, or the joint pain goes on um, for a long time in the morning, this sort of early morning stiffness that lasts for at least an hour um, and doesn't lessen or gets worse as the day goes on with movement rather than getting better with movement. All of those should be raising alarm bells. I've already talked about the corda equina, so incontinence of urine or feces and or loss of strength or power in one or both legs. Eye symptoms. Well, why do I mention eye symptoms? Well, people who've got psoriasis. So you can always say, hmm, what's going on? You know, they say, oh, I've got a really blinding headache and my eye, I don't like looking at the, the bright light. Um, and you say, oh, do you have psoriasis or do you have a skin rash um, that you often have to treat? And they go, yes. Like, that, that would be a red flag. So those are the ones that, if, very briefly, I would suggest, but the other thing is, as GPs, we're realising how important pharmacies and community pharmacies are. And we're wanting to work with you. We've got lots of stuff on our websites, but we haven't yet sort of connected with you. And maybe one of the things we should be doing is actually looking at how can the local community pharmacies and the local GP services work together. And that would include training. And I would strongly suggest that any GP... Um, is likely to be very happy to um, talk to uh, yourselves and uh, help you um, with, say, you know, these are your common questions, right, how, this is what we would do. Um, why not? You are a really, really useful resource um, to the point that we in um, RGP surgery now have four pharmacists, including uh, technicians and assistants employed. And um, it's a watch this space because I think it's absolutely brilliant. My thanks to Artie Williams and Alistair Dixon. The content for this podcast was taken from a webcast originally broadcast on September the 29th, 2021. All our podcasts and webcasts, as well as an extensive library of CPD and learning content, can be found on the Pharmacy Magazine website, pharmacymagazine.co.uk. Until the next time, thanks very much for listening.